0: Hi, everyone, and welcome to the latest episode of the Wharton Fintech Podcast. I'm your host, Peter Jankowski, and today I'm very excited to be speaking with Mike Fahn. Mike is currently an executive in residence at Oak HCFT, where he's developing and advising new fintech businesses. Prior to Oak, Mike was the COO of Venmo from 2011 to 2019, helping to build the business from six people in a garage in Philly through two acquisitions, and ultimately to 40 million active users, a $300 million annual revenue run rate, and $100 billion in payments in 2019. Prior to Venmo, Mike helped to scale several successful businesses. We're excited to host Mike, especially because he's another Wharton grad breaking new ground in FinTech. Welcome Mike, and thanks for joining us. Great to join you, happy to do it. So could you start by telling us about your background?
1: Sure. So my my tie to Wharton is uh Wharton undergrad back in last century 1997 and then in I was in entrepreneurship one of my concentrations and sort of went off and there was a handful of us that didn't want to go into finance or consulting and and went off in the entrepreneurial path which is still, you know, the minority but back then was really the minority particularly uh, coming out of Wharton. And just uh, sort of fell in love with the idea of building things, building businesses and, and ideas and, and solving problems. And and I had a little bit of a tech background and had done computer science and, and programming in college, but was not, you know, was not building apps and, and writing code on my own. I was I was more the business guy in the in the tech businesses and had done, you know, I so over, you know, twenty plus years have done various gotten involved in various tech startups. And in in different spaces, was with a company in San Francisco called Telefia that eventually sold to Nielsen and sort of in the sort of competitive intelligence data space to measuring wireless performance. Been in, uh, was with a company in, in Philly called TicketLeap, which was a online ticketing marketplace. It's where I met one of the co-founders of Venmo. Ikram was, was uh, on the tech side there and it's where he and I met and he started working on Venmo with his buddy Cortina when we were at Venmo and, and I eventually, this was like 2009, 10, I joined them in 2011 when it was five guys in an apartment in Philly. And, and uh, it was part of that whole journey through, you know, an acquisition by Braintree and an acquisition by PayPal, PayPal split from eBay and over the course of eight years from 2011 to, to 2019 was part of building Venmo into what it is today and got it to when I left, it was a, 40 million user platform and processing hundred billion dollars in payments. So kind of seeing all sides of it from an enterprise business to a marketplace business to, to Venmo. Venmo doesn't really need an explanation, just, just say Venmo. And then more recently gotten sort of into the investor advisor side of things, helping different startups as an investor, advisor, board member over the last year since I left Venmo and doing some work with a venture fund in New York called Oak HCFT, which is a growth stage fintech healthcare fund. So
0: kind of seeing all sides of it uh, these days. That's great. And this this wouldn't be a fintech podcast if we didn't talk about Venmo and, and now your time at Oak. But just before we jump into there, I'm just curious, you've been an entrepreneur for or around entrepreneurship throughout your career. How did you get the itch to jump into entrepreneurship? And what's what's kept you interested in entrepreneurship throughout your career?
1: There's something about just like the idea I, when my career is kind of bounced around and when you look at there's no particular industry in a lot of cases there's not even a specific role and it. it's hard to sort of put me in a box and and the best way I explain it to people is is I just I like building things and I'm good at building things and 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 that can take on different forms and you know we talked about different you know I've been in enterprise consumer marketplace different industries and I find that I'm pretty good at sort of learning about industries or opportunities and then figuring out how to go build solutions for that. And so I've always sort of said the thread between it all is is being a builder. And And I just like that idea of like finding big opportunities to solve big problems and, and go and building solutions for them, what, whatever form that takes. And even, even when you go from like early stage, which is where I spent most of my career through you know, with Venmo, I stayed on all the way through at scale, at a scale that very few companies ever get to in terms of size of the user base and, and, and the platform. And even at that point, we were still building things, you know, we're a 30 or 40 million user platform, and we launched the Venmo card. And so that to me is, is again, you're building, now you're building at a much bigger scale where, you know, you flip the switch on, and 10, you know, five or 10 million people might be using the product, but it doesn't necessarily mean it has to be you know at that zero to one phase it can be at any different sort of stage for me it really was about you know i just was drawn to the to the idea of you know building things i don't think i knew it at the time i just knew i didn't want to go into investment banking or consulting so it was it was a, it was a very binary thing for me at the time i was like yeah that doesn't sound very interesting to me uh, i wasn't great at finance and i didn't want to do consulting so it seemed cooler to sort of go you know, be part of starting something from the ground up. And and then, uh, you know, over the course of my career, I started to think about, well, you know, what's tying all this together? That seems like kind of a random path. And it, that's kind of how I, the, the thread I
0: tie through all of it. That's great. So talking about Venmo, it's interesting to think about Venmo now because Venmo has basically become a verb, right? Synonymous or, or similar to how people talk about Googling. People talk about Venmo when they talk about sending money. But I imagine that 10, Plus years ago when Venmo was first being started, it was difficult to think of to think of Venmo growing to that scale. Could you tell us a bit about how you found the opportunity and what some of the what the early stages of Venmo were like? How did you guys grow from a few guys in a garage to what it's become today?
1: Yeah, I mean, it, it is funny because I will give Ikram and Cortina, who the two co founders credit. When they were, when they were coming up with the Venmo name, one of the, I have a, I have a slide from an old slide deck that I used to give to new employees at Venmo. One of it was everyone always asked where the Venmo name came from. And one of the criteria when they were coming up with the name was they wanted a short, a short name that that the domain was available. So they didn't have to go pay somebody who was squatting on it. And, uh, Venmo was, was, uh, was available at, on GoDaddy. And, and uh, they wanted a name that could become a verb. And that was one of the criteria. And they had, they, they had the foresight at the time, even though it was like the two of them and 10 of their friends were on Venmo. And, and I was one of them. They had the idea back then that they thought, you know, if this thing catches on, they want it to be able to be become a verb where you can Venmo me. And uh, so they they all along thought it was going to be that. Now it took a while for the rest of the world to catch up to <laughs> in terms of like realizing the potential of it. But I think the one of the interesting things about Venmo is how simple it is. And it's just like the 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 whole premise of Venmo was was, you know, sending money should be as as easy as sending a text message. And and why is it so hard to pay somebody back? And and so in fact Venmo started as a text messaging app. And I think part of what made Venmo's scale possible and, and what made it appealing was was its simplicity. And and you know, it's hard to make things that are Simple and easy to use, but actually create some value, and and I think that was the beauty of Venmo was was it all just depended on this simple idea of you know we're going to make it easier, and and eventually you know they added the social layer as well with the, with the app you know make it easier and a little more fun to to pay you know send money to somebody or get get paid by somebody, and you know, if we do that, then the sort of virality of it took care of itself because Venmo was was sort of built on the the basis of real-world relationships and, and things that people were doing together. And so they didn't have to think about, you know, there wasn't as much focus on how do you artificially create the virality. And Venmo was a unique case where the, the users sort of created that for us. And so Venmo just had to take care of the fact that make the product, you know, simple to use and 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 fun to use and easy to use, and, and then the user will take care of the rest of it
0: for us. And that's that's kind of how it played out. Yeah, that's a great principle, and has has definitely worked out. So I'm curious, looking back at your time at Venmo, you mentioned the decision to add this so- social component to it, and that how, how that led to this element of virality and, and people sharing the product with each other. I'm wondering if there are there certain key decision points that stick out to you over the t- over your time at Venmo of you know they might have been forks in the road or decisions that you'd made to go one way or the other that were really key to the growth of the company.
1: Yeah, I mean, the, the, there are a lot of those when you look back in hindsight, where you go product decisions wise. I mean, obviously for Venmo, the, the feed was, was a big one where we, we had, there's sort of three iterations of Venmo to the one you still know today. And the first one was text messaging app. And that's where Venmo got the, the concept of putting a note with a payment. Very different than a memo on a check. Right, which is sort of how all other payment systems think about it. They were, you know, they're replacing a check and you might want to write the invoice number on a check. It was very transactional. Venmo, because it was trying to make paying somebody similar to texting somebody, it's like, hey, I'm gonna pay I'm gonna pay my friend five dollars. And if that text message showed up and it said Mike paid you five dollars, it would be you would wanna know what it was for. And so it was just natural to say pay, you know, $5 for lunch, right? And so when you're thinking about, you know, the note was a very, it had a very sort of practical purpose at the beginning, which was, well, you don't want a text to show up that just says so-and-so paid you $5. You want to know what it was for. Um, And so that was one. And then the note became a mandatory field. To to this day, you have to put a note in memo. You can put, you know, you could put a a single character, but the, the note field Never became optional, and and that was a point of debate ongoing. Was should we make the note optional? And and every time we discussed it, it, it the answer was no. It's 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 a fundamental part of when you pay somebody that we're not forcing you. Like there's always a context, right? And then I think number two is when we when we launched the app, it started out as a very transactional sort of experience. It was pay, charge, friend, cash out, or something. There was like four big buttons, and and there was a point at which. That can, that turned into what you now know is the Venmo feed, which is the which is the main screen. It's all it, it's the main screen in the app. When you log in, you see the feed first. It's not like a transactional page, but it doesn't take away from the ease of going in, hitting a button, and paying somebody. That's still easy to do and fast to do. But the feed becoming the home screen was was another point. And that was probably I would say like 2012 ish range and that was the point at which we said social is is front and center in this experience and and love it or hate it, it it became front and center on venmo and and then of course out of that came emojis with payments and now you know most payments have emojis and 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 actually i i would argue you might find that most of mo payments are all emoji and and no no words right like because it just became inherent it just became part of the venmo thing was you know emoji strings but but it all started with the with the feed and the social component of the feed, and that was that was another sort of decision point that I think was was pretty critical. And that that sort of fed the some of the growth in the social aspects of Venmo. That you know, while the we sort of leaned on Venmo users having these real world relationships, the social feed really fed it and and, and became a key part of you know. And it be, Venmo became a social network for people. People look at the Venmo feed and. And, and engage with it in, in a very different way than they do their bank app. And, and you engage with the Venmo app much more frequently if you're an active user than just to make a payment. And that's because you're going in and, and engaging with it in, in different ways. So I think, I think those are sort of two of the big product moments. And I think from a business standpoint, people always ask did we sell too early and we'll never know the answer to it because we, we sold to Braintree in 2012. It was only like a year after we did the A round. And my my personal take on it is I I don't know if you you'd have heard about Bembo if we hadn't sold just because the the amount of money that was needed to sort of grow the business if we tried to stay private it was unclear if we were going to be able to continue to raise enough private venture capital to grow it and and we were fortunate that we got acquired by Braintree a year later we get acquired by PayPal PayPal really believed in what we were doing and and funded our growth all the way through when I left the, you know, the platform's 40 million users and processes a hundred billion in payments. And, th- and that required a very strong convince- conviction and very deep pockets from, from a company like PayPal to get there that it's unclear if, you know, at the time we would have been able to raise that kind of money. So I, I, I would say it was the right move. And it probably sort of was one of the, maybe the, the reason, you know, that Venmo was able to, to, to turn itself into what it is now is that fact that we did, did get acquired and maybe wouldn't have been possible if if we tried to stay and
0: sort of raise money all along the way. Yeah, that's great. One quick follow up on some of the product decisions that you had spoke to. Uh, you mentioned how there was this social component that was really front and center and and how that became one of the distinguishing parts of Venmo. How did you guys discover that or how did you decide to build that in? Was it just part of the vision from the outset? Was it based on user testing and, and user insights? I mean,
1: early days of Venmo, there was
0: it was. I mean, user testing amounted to the
1: the founders and the early engineers asking the rest of us in the office and a bunch of their friends. <laughs> that was we were the most active users on Venmo, so we didn't have to go very far to. We figured if if we liked it, there's a good chance everyone else will like it too. And we were using Venmo way more than anyone. So formal user testing, you know, didn't find its way into Venmo until a little later on because it was a unique product, and that you know we all lived in it, and 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 it played out in a way where you know it proved to be a, a good approach, where you know the things we built for ourselves turned out to be things everyone else wanted as well. The social side of it really was it, it was it was there from the beginning. There was it was actually when the when the app was a text message only app. Before the actual App Store app, uh, when it was just text messaging, they built a feature where you could put a pound P at the end of your text message and it would show up on the website. And so if, if if I sent you money and said this is $5 for lunch and put pound P at the end, it would actually show up. And if you were friends with me on Venmo, you'd have to log into the website and then you could see it there. That's how, like, which didn't really make any sense, but they knew enough to know, like, there's some sort of context to every payment. That your friends might find it interesting, and so why not why not st- make that available? And if you want to share it, you don't have to share it, but if you want to share it, then your friends can see what you're doing. And if you're going out to lunch or you're going out for drinks, they can see what restaurant you went to. And so they did. The founders, when they were building it, even back in those early days, had some idea that there was some social context to it. And then the feed became the point at which we put it front and center, and, and said the feed should be the you know the, the default screen when you log in should be the feed was was. Was the big turning point in really having that become sort of a core part of the product. But it was in their minds from even before the app existed that there was a social context to payments, and it was it was not obvious that the feed was something that everyone was going to like. And it, it's still the case that I don't think everyone likes it, but it but it certainly is. It is what people know about. You know, when they think Venmo, they think they think feed. The social feed is a key part of it and And I think that has that has played out in the sense of there's a component of Venmo, which is inherently social in this real life relationships that that people have that that the feed sort of created the environment for that stuff to play out. and And when we first did it, it was not th- there was a long debate about it. It was not obvious to people it was the right thing to do, but it eventually, you know, in hindsight, it became what Venmo is today, right? And so it was it was certainly an interesting sort of path to get to that point. and, and it wasn't there from
0: from day one. that was that was a couple of years into it before that became you know a key part of the experience. It's fun for me at least to hear the history of a product that I know and love quite well to think about what it was like in some of the early days. So Venmo today is it's grown quite a bit. Venmo has has released Venmo card. We can now pay with Venmo at a lot of merchants. I'm just curious for for your thoughts on what's next. What would be your vision for Venmo? Yeah,
1: and I mean, I, I it's been it's been over a year now since I since I left, and so I'm, I'm more of the you know like everybody else outside looking in at this point. And I think I think there are aspects of Venmo which are you know PayPal had PayPal's been is an amazing business. I mean, it's one of the few companies that has survived from sort of the first internet you know boom. And is still at the front of its industry today, and and has reinvented itself. And and PayPal is predominantly like an e-commerce ecosystem, right? Where it's buyers and sellers. You have consumers buying through the PayPal button. You have merchants, you know. And, and now it started just in the eBay world, and now as you know every big retailer has a PayPal button. There are very few sites you go to that doesn't have a PayPal button. And I think you've seen some of what Venmo has done has sort of followed that path of pay with Venmo. It's, you know, you can, you can pay for Uber or Grubhub with, with your Venmo account. And it's very similar experience where it's a button inside the app where you can pay with your Venmo account, Venmo and PayPal and Square for that matter, all have a card attached to their, to their, you know, and essentially acts like a debit account. I think some of the interesting things that Venmo has done is around how do you tie the social feed ins are doing more things with brands and, and rewards and promotions that Venmo users can get perks and benefits that brands want to tap into because of the social aspect of Venmo. I think there's opportunities for Venmo to do more in the in in the direction of, you know, providing more of a hub for managing your financial life whatever that looks like, you know, maybe do add more services like what they did with the Venmo card where they added the debit card, do you, you know, give people a way to save money, do you give people a way to you know buy stock or buy bitcoin and other things. I, I I don't know if that's the direction it'll go, but I think they've certainly opened the door to that kind of opportunity. You know Venmo today is still US only. PayPal's a global business. Does does Venmo ever get outside the US? You'd think there's a need for a similar type of service, but there but there are unique aspects to the banking infrastructure in the US that that might suggest you know, what Square Cash and Venmo and Zelle do in the U.S. Maybe the U.S. is the only place that needs it, I, you know, but we we haven't really seen another platform like those three in the U.S., which have all in their own right gotten pretty big. Outside the U.S., you don't see something like that. That's a P2P-first kind of experience, you know, and and so does Venmo ever get outside the U.S. other than PayPal, I guess you could say, and, and some of the apps in, in Asia like like WeChat? So I think there's a lot of questions around that. Like I've been, you know, while I was there, I was, I was at Venmo for eight years. And for the last five, we were talking about, should Venmo get outside the U S And the answer always ended up being no, but, but it never, the question never went away. And I I don't know if they're still talking about it or if they put it to rest or if maybe they're doing it. But, uh, but I think it's, it's still an interesting question to think. How does an app have last time they announced, I think in, in, uh, Q1 or Q4 of last year, they announced like 52 million users and, and 100 million in payments. And you go, well, there are 50 plus million people in the US using it. You'd think maybe outside the US people want to use similar kind of service. But I think, I think that's, a, that's an unknown as well. So I think there are a lot of interesting things in terms of different directions you
0: could take it depending on what you want it to, to become. Yeah, and, and speaks to the, uh, the value of the business, the fact that there are lots of directions that it can go in and they're all very interesting. So, thanks for sharing that bit. So, about a year ago, you mentioned that you left Venmo and you had joined Oak HCFT. Could you tell us a bit more about Oak and how you spend your time there?
1: Yeah, so the, they're a growth stage venture fund investing in healthcare and fintech businesses, and they have they they have three funds now. They have almost two billion dollars under management. They're on their on their third fund, and investing in companies that are. Software tech-based businesses in in healthcare and fintech. I work mostly with the fintech team, but there there are several other companies on the healthcare side that are sol- solving fintech-type problems in healthcare. You know, there's one of the companies, Uda, that that has a product called Uda Pay, which is trying to sort of help solve some of the pain and and problems in in the payments between insurance companies and providers and patients in that whole loop. And and so it's very much a fintech business in the healthcare space. Uh, And so there's, there's crossovers like that. And I'm, I'm doing a helping sort of advise some of their companies, helping source some deals, look at opportunities. We're looking at things we can, that we can invest in that I can go help, you know, operate, potentially start something. So kind of keeping it open in terms of what it leads to. And, and it's been good to sort of just get some exposure to the other side of things. I've spent my whole life on the operator side and raised a bunch of time. So sort of good, good to get a seat on the other side of the table and see, see how, uh, venture funds operate how they think about investing how they think about you know working with founders and 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 I'm a, I'm there to sort of you know help sort of bridge the gap between
0: the investors and and in the operating teams with the stuff that that they are looking at and investing in on the topic of what's next I'm I'm curious for your thoughts on what's next for the industry you have a unique vantage point having operated the industry and and now investing in lots of early growth stage companies how do you think about where the next wave of innovation in fintech is gonna, going to be com- coming from and what some of the opportunities might be?
1: Yeah, they, I mean, I think there's a big, there's, there's a there's an opportunity with with these platforms as a service. And so, you, you know, we were acquired by Braintree, which, which, you know, on the acquiring side of the business, merchant processing created a, you know, a whole new wave of Tech startups that could be built on the backbone of Braintree or Stripe or Idean—you know, all of which were sort of, you know, that that wave of evolution and, and making it easier for companies to just process payments and collect money from their customers—and <laughs> that used to be much more difficult to do. And and you know, now uh, startups take it for granted. You just get up and running and hop on Braintree, and, and you're up and running. You know, back when Venmo started or prior to that, some of the companies I was involved with prior to that it took a lot of effort and a lot of time and a lot of pain and suffering to get up and running in that space. And, 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 and so you see platforms like that and the benefit from it from a venture standpoint is you invest in something like Braintree. Plaid is a more recent one. Venmo was an early customer client of Plaid's and Plaid just, you know, sold the Visa for five plus billion dollars. Similar concept of your platform, you grow as fast as you're growing, but you're also growing at the pace of your clients. So if your client is Venmo and Venmo is going from zero to, 50 million users while you're also adding a bunch of other clients, you get this multiplier effect of, you know, you're growing as fast as you're growing times the pace of your growth of your clients. And, and so Plaid had a similar dynamic to what Braintree or Stripe or I't had in the in the payment space. Galileo was an issuance company that just sold the. To, for a billion plus dollars where similar concept on the issuance side where it's, you know, you, a lot of the neobanks are, are clients of theirs. And so as they grow, so I think you're going to see another wave of that kind of stuff. What, what are the platforms as a service that, and, and evolutions on those businesses as well, where you, you know, you tend to see this kind of wave of change where if Braintree and Stripe are that first generation, what's next after that? And I think there is another wave coming around what people are now calling embedded finance where you sort of merge two independent worlds used to be sort of enterprise SaaS software and and payments. And well, now those two are not necessarily independent things. Where you need to you need to build on a software platform for one part of your business and a and a fintech platform for another part of your business. But now you're starting to see those two come together. Toast is a good example. Although you know the recent pandemic has has been a you know massive uh, speed bump for for Toast because they're in the restaurant space. But the core business is this new wave where it's they're providing what you you know typically would have been a software. Hardware platform that that restaurants would have had to pay for. Well, now that you can layer in fintech components to it, and make money on the payment side, on the lending side, and do provide uh, other financial services. There's less of a need to make all of the margin on on the software side of it. So you can make you know you can provide the software at a much more cost-effective price point and really open it up to smaller businesses. Square was a good example of that for for small businesses where you know they they, they could offer small businesses a a merchant platform that they wouldn't have been able to afford if they had to go pay a licensing fee for it. But Square is able to essentially offer that to them as part of a package where they make all their money on the processing. And so I think you see, you know, the next wave is going to be more industry focused solutions like what Toast did, where you see vertically integrated platforms that provide fintech type services like lending or even banking type services where, you know, you can offer a debit card in a marketplace and and things like that, that uh, I think will be pretty interesting over this sort of
0: next cycle of sort of
1: platform solutions.
0: Yeah, that makes a lot of sense and and resonates with us. We just hosted Frank Young from Global Payments on the podcast recently. He spoke to some of the companies that he's he's been working with on this theme of embedded fintech. So definitely a prominent theme. We'd love to touch on two more personal questions just as we wrap up here. And the first is on career advice. So if you were to give career advice to somebody who was in your shoes, you know, let's say graduating and just <laughs> entering the fintech industry for the first time, what advice would you share with them?
1: I'm probably the worst person to ask that, but I think I think one of the things I've learned part of sort of being part of PayPal, I used to be one of these guys that was like, you know what, if you if you spend too long in an in- industry, it's just like you get a lot of baggage and Venmo was started by a bunch of people that had no idea what they were doing in, in payments and created a payments business. And I think sometimes that is needed where you need that sort of outside view and, and untainted perspective of the space. I did learn to appreciate sort of this scale and the, and the magnitude of what it takes to run a platform the size of PayPal or an American Express that, you know, a lot of the people that, that came over to PayPal when Dan Schulman came on, came from Amex, and, and you learn just like how hard problems are at that scale. When you're a startup, you're like, hey, what's worse that happens? We have a few hundred users, they'll get annoyed, but they'll deal with it and, and they'll understand when you're dealing with things at that scale, it just is a whole different ballgame. And and that's something, you know, we sort of learned on the fly with Venmo, but we also had the benefit of being part of PayPal is another one of the reasons why I think, it, you know, it helped us scale is and just appreciating sort of what it takes to, to grow a business and run a business at that size. And, and in terms of, you know, everything you do is going to instantly affect millions and maybe tens of millions of people. And being able to learn from people in that environment and it, and so i think the takeaway was i just think there you know i'm much better equipped to you know advise or run a business today having been in that environment than than i used to be and i didn't need to learn it all by by doing and making all the same mistakes so i think there is a lot of value in sort of getting that diversity of experience and there are there are good places to go do that you know you go to startups you can always go to startups you can get involved in high growth companies but thinking about what where can you go learn and be part of something that that is at that kind of scale and and still have it be kind of a challenging growth t- kind of environment. I think that's the hard part is you don't want to go to some place that's like a slow, stodgy, you know, in FinTech, you don't want to go to a slow, stodgy bank. But there are big companies where you can go learn. And, and maybe that's not your lifelong dream, but but I think there's value. And I I don't think I used to, Totally appreciate that. Until having spent the last five years with with PayPal and, and learning from all the people and and the teams there and and the partners that we had a chance to work with, like the Ubers of the world, and even you know when we partnered with with Mastercard, for example. And and I think being able to get that diverse experience can go a long way to whatever you want to ultimately do. And and so I think taking advantage of in earlier in your career, sort of. Figuring out ways to get different experiences that can benefit you in the long run, even if it's even if you don't envision yourself being a big company person forever, there's a lot of value. And and I think in my career, I sort of wanted to stay as far away from big companies as I could. And and then woke up one day and found myself working at PayPal via via acquisition. And I thought I'd be out of there in a year. And and the more I stuck around, the more I wanted to be part of building a and learning from that environment. And, and I think it's it's done well for me, and probably could have benefited from that, you know, 10 years earlier, if I, if I had thought about it, but, uh, but I think, I think it's, it's something I've sort of changed my
0: view on over the years. That's great advice. Thanks for sharing that. And last question. And I realized that we're also right at time. So feel free to, to pass on this one if that's appropriate, yeah. but um, what do you like to do for fun outside of work? <laughs> you haven't
1: seen him, but we're on a zoom since this is a podcast, but uh, my dog, we have a golden retriever and he's usually roaming around the backyard. So anything with him. And my wife and I take our two boys right now. We're struggling because we like to travel a lot. So you you and I were talking earlier about before we started the podcast about Coachella, we were, we were going to be at Coachella this year. That got canceled. We had, we had a trip uh, planned this summer uh, to Mexico city that got canceled. So we're, we're, that's normally what we're doing a lot of is, is traveling. Uh, last summer, we took our boys to Japan and, and London and Barcelona. And so we'd like to get them out. And so we're trying to figure out you know, how to fill in those gaps. Long Beach Island, which is the Jersey Shore, is our, is our family spot. So we're spending a lot more time down
0: there uh, until we can get back out on the road. Great. Well, thanks, Mike. Thanks for sharing your wisdom and advice. And best of luck with whatever comes next.
1: Yeah, th- it was it was fun. Thanks for having me on.